Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. You are listening to episode number seven of the GateWorld Podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. In this week's episode, we are talking about Ghost in the Machine, the newest episode of Stargate Atlantis that aired last week on Sci-Fi. We'll also give you a preview of our upcoming interview with actor David Nichol, who plays Dr. Radek Zelenka on Atlantis. And of course, we'll run down the latest Stargate news and features from GateWorld. Head to www.gateworld.net now to check out the very latest Stargate news, interviews, and special features. This show is a proud sponsor of the 2008 Loop of Congarat. The Loop of Congarat. Make your dreams come true or die trying. The GateWorld podcast starts right now. Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Darren Sumner, and joining me is David Reed, GateWorld's co-editor. David? Hello, hello. Back for number seven. Yeah, looking forward to this one. Yeah, you're getting ready to go to GateCon this week, aren't you? That is correct, but that's not what I was looking forward to. It was a great... uh, I mean, Ghost in the Machine means something very special to you and I. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this week's episode. I was excited to watch it, obviously, because we were there watching some of the scenes being filmed back in April. Exactly. Right. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. Yeah. And I love Michelle Morgan. And I love Michelle Morgan. (laughs) Stargate News. Here are the latest headlines from GateWorld for August 19th, 2008. There's a brand new Stargate Atlantis novel now available. Fandemonium has announced the publication of Mirror Mirror, written by Sabine C. Bauer. When the Atlantis team comes into possession of an ancient device capable of wiping out the Wraith, it's an offer they can't refuse. But the experiment fails disastrously, trapping the team in different versions of Atlantis and threatening to unravel the fabric of the Pegasus Galaxy. Look for Mirror Mirror now at Amazon, or visit StargateNovels.com to learn more. I wonder if this uh, novel should have been named The Atlantis Variations. It's going to be interesting to see this portrayed inside a novel, you know, where you have to visualize it all yourself. I think that should be cool. Yeah, I'm interested in looking at this one. Sabine wrote the very first SG-1 novel that Fandemonium published a couple of years ago. Yep, Trial by Fire. It was good. Stargate director Martin Wood has been nominated for an award by the Directors Guild of Canada. Martin has directed more than 75 hours of Stargate SG-1 and Atlantis, and he's up for recognition for his work on last season's episode, Trio. Martin Garrow, who wrote the episode, recently told GateWorld it was originally meant to be a simple episode to save money, but Trio turned into one of the most logistically complicated episodes Atlantis has ever done. Congratulations to Martin Wood for this well-deserved honor. I've been reading the news posts uh, after after I posted this story. You know, a lot of fans thought that that Martin had done better episodes in uh, in season four. Yeah, a lot of people so, aren't crazy about Trio. Yeah, you know, I mean, they were pretty open in saying that they were examining this from a directorial standpoint, where he had done better shows. So, I don't know. I'm glad that he's up for the award. Absolutely glad. And I'm not, but I'm not sure where I fall on on this this continuum of of uh, whether or not it was. Uh, Martin's best work for the season. Yeah. But like I said, you know, I think it's more important that he's recognized at all. The Sci-Fi Channel has released brand new story info on the next four new episodes of Stargate Atlantis. Visit GateWorld.net now to find the preview synopsis for this Friday's episode, The Shrine, a McKay episode that guest stars Kate Hewlett as Rodney's sister Jeannie. We also have new synopses for Whispers, 
the Queen and Tracker, and more on the way this week, including new details on the mid-season two-parter that guest stars Michael Shanks as Daniel Jackson. Also new to the site are the first photos from episodes 9 and 10, Tracker and First Contact, which will air in September. Check out the Stargate Image Gallery at stargategallery.com. I have been really excited about most of the episodes that are coming up. I say most, not all, but uh, you know, there, there, there's some really interesting stories this year. Yeah, there was just something about seeing Jack and Daniel in the opening scenes in Rising, the Atlantis pilot, and it's just really exciting to see those first pictures of Shanks sitting in the city of Atlantis, which we haven't seen him in except for Pegasus Project in the last season of SG-1. And finally, the working title for the season finale of Atlantis has been announced. Executive producer Joseph Malazzi reveals that season five will end with Enemy at the Gate. The episode is written by executive producer Paul Mulley, and hopefully we'll see a return appearance by Samantha Carter. Enemy at the Gate will shoot 19th in the production order before the crew packs up and heads south to shoot episode 19 in Las Vegas, Nevada. The season finale will also be Atlantis's 100th episode. Despite the fact that we won't know for several weeks whether the network will renew the show for another year, season 5 will end with a cliffhanger. Do you think that Enemy at the Gate is literally at the Stargate or is metaphorical like maybe an enemy shows up over the planet you know, like in Dudless Variations? I was just thinking about that. One of the things about Atlantis is that it's very space-driven. You know, and if there's a threat to Atlantis, it usually is physically to Atlantis itself. Uh-huh. And even though season three's finale, the, the threat from the season three finale came via a Stargate, it was still in a direct threat to the exterior of Atlantis. Uh-huh. And, you know, Enemy at the Gate, you know, I think, it's, I think it's time for us to have a threat where the Stargate itself is the direct cause, you know, and I I like that idea. I like what that title suggests. What about you? Yeah, I think it's a really cool title, and I hope that it's connected to the Stargate a little more. Makes me think of episodes like Anubis's Attack in Redemption, parts one and two, season Season six six. of SG-1. I was was thinking of season three, yep. Yeah, Sokar's Attack in season three's uh, Serpent Song. Oh, where, season two. Season two. Season two, Serpent Song, where where the Stargate itself is under direct attack. Yeah, that is a, that is an amazing show. You know, I love that. I don't know about this Las Vegas business though. When they first started talking about having an episode set in Las Vegas, to be honest, I thought they were joking. You know, at Rob, it's the it's his idea, and he's writing and directing it. So I know that it's going to be amazing. It's just a matter of we're asking ourselves on this side of of viewing the episode, what the heck. Whatever, you know, let him work his magic. I'm sure there's a cool explanation for it. It may be the equivalent of Enterprise's three days and three nights or wherever, whatever it was called, where they're literally on vacation. Yeah, so. I'm just hoping it's not going to be the Las Vegas version of Outcast, where they're just chasing somebody like a replicator all around the city. You know, I give Rob more credit than that. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Outcast was a fine episode, but uh, Rob is just one of my favorite Stargate writers, and I know he's going to come up with something great. Gateworld Features. This week on GateWorld, we're releasing an interview that has been a long time coming. A brand new piece uh, featuring David Nickel as Radek Zelenka from Stargate Atlantis. David talks about working on the show for nearly five years now, playing the underdog scientist. He discusses some parts of the job that have become easier over time and others which have become not so easy, and why he still loves coming to work every day. Visit GateWorld this week for the complete interview. GateWorld's brand new interview with Michelle Morgan is now online. The actress plays Fran on Stargate Atlantis, guest starring, of course, in last week's episode, Ghost in the Machine. 
We caught up with her on the set of this episode, and she talked to us about the role she was originally cast for, but had to back out of, her introduction to Fran and the mythology of the Replicators, and the very unique challenges of playing Elizabeth Weir in this episode. Listen to this audio interview now at GateWorld.net, or subscribe to the GateWorld Interviews podcast to download this and other interviews straight to your iPod or MP3 player. Now you can get the Stargate Continuum soundtrack straight from GateWorld. The audio CD is now shipping from the GateWorld store and includes nearly an hour of the film's stirring score from composer Joel Goldsmith. The soundtrack also includes a unique 24-page full-color booklet with essays by Brad Wright, Robert C. Cooper, Martin Wood, and Joel Goldsmith, plus original artwork and exclusive movie photos. Head over to the GateWorld store at gateworldstore.com to listen to samples. You are listening to the GateWorld podcast. The main discussion. Our main topic for this week is last Friday's episode of Stargate Atlantis, Ghost in the Machine. Darren, were you happy to see the return of Fran? Oh my god. Answer yes or yes. I love Fran so much. I love Michelle Morgan. I so know, much. you know. Be All My Sins Remembered last season was obviously one of the best episodes of the season. A lot of fans, I'm one of them, say it was the best episode of the season and probably in the top one or two of the series so far. And that episode was packed with so much payoff for all the, the episodes that had gone before it. And the huge space battle and the end of the replicators and the planet blowing up and the giant blob. But still, even with all that, the highlight of that episode to me, I think, was this character. This sweet, innocent, she-might-turn-on-us-at-any-second character, Fran. I'm a spoiler-phobe, so I avoided all spoilers for this episode. And Fran, along with we're at the end of the episode, Fran was an absolute surprise and a delight. Mm-hmm. You know, and Carl Binder, we, we later met with Carl, and a fan had asked him before Be All My Sins Remembered had aired, you know, if you could write for any one character, who would it be? And he said, Fran. And they were like, huh? So I completely agree. That's right. I completely agree with him. You know, I think that that's really cool that they brought her back, you know, and I can't wait to see the next one. Yeah, frankly. I was really excited to see her back. And, you know, it's it's a little bittersweet because this was supposed to be Tori Higginson's big return to Atlantis as Elizabeth Weir. And Tori decided not to do the episode, so they had to kind of reconfigure it in order to be able to finish that story that they introduced at the end of Be All My Sins Remembered with Weir. Frankly, I think that the way they did it, using the ancient technology to have Weir's consciousness sort of reincarnated as Fran was just a stroke of brilliance. Yeah, you know, and that was a bold move, too. I mean, Ken Girardi, the the way that he shot that was so that we were seeing through what should have been Tori's eyes any time that she wasn't on screen. Mm-hmm. I kind of knew what they were doing, you know, that they were doing a workaround, but it was okay. You know, that aspect of it was okay. And uh, I think uh, Michelle Morgan just about completely sold me on, on her copying Elizabeth. She did a pretty bang-up job. As I said to her when we were sitting with her in her trailer, you know, I mean, this is a pretty cool thing that they're, I mean, the, the aside from McKay, the oldest character on this show, you know, has, has been given to you to lift up. Yeah, and this, this episode was the one that was filming when we got to visit the set in April. And when we were talking to the writers and producers like Carl and to the director, Ken Girardi, they were saying to us, you know, it's, it's almost creepy the way that Michelle seems to be almost channeling Weir. And she did she did all this research into the past history of the character, and she's just got the mannerisms and the inflections in her voice just down. And then they said, and don't tell that to Michelle because we don't want to spook her. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to jinx it. Right. 
<laughs> but now we can let the word out. Yeah, I think she yeah, she was job. great, you know? So Elizabeth, in one form or another, returns in this episode. Now help me figure this out. We've seen our Elizabeth yeah, I know. with replicator nanites. We've seen a flesh and blood copy of Elizabeth that was created by Neum's replicator group. Right. And then we saw and... another weir at the end of Be All My Sins Remembered, and we're not really sure who she is, if she was the real human weir, or if she was maybe a completely replicator copy of weir. This episode finally kind of explains all that and, and brings the weirs together. So there were two of them, not there weren't three, right? I was think... she the weir that was left behind in... Uh, I think she was the weir who was left behind in uh, Lifeline. That's the way that she yeah. explains it in, in some of the, the flashback exposition that we see in the mm-hmm. first act. She says mm-hmm. that when she ordered the team to leave her behind, Oberoth, instead of killing her, they took her to a lab and basically unleashed the nanites that were in her system, and they completely took over her system and, and replicated. And what I got out of that was that the replicator nanite cells basically eliminated the organic cells in her and they created, purged all human life. created a completely replicator body that still had her human consciousness in it. Yeah, and Neum's group found her out after a while. Yeah, Neum's group is still tagging along. We met them in Season three's progeny when we first were introduced to the Asurans, the Pegasus Galaxy version of the Replicators. So these guys want to ascend. They don't really agree with Oberoth and the leaders of, of the Replicators, who are now long gone since we blew up their planet. But um, their their main goal is ascension, is to follow the ancients who created them. We asked fans the question last week. Do you think we've had we've seen enough of the replicators, uh, or do you have you had enough rather? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll be getting to that momentarily. But uh, what do you think, Darren? Do you think we've seen enough of the replicators for now? That's a hard one to answer because the replicators have gone through so many iterations and so many ups and downs since they were first introduced nine years ago now. In, in Nemesis in SG-1's third season and they were bugs and then they were advanced bugs and there was a mother bug and then they were humanoid and then they were being led by Replicarder and then we found Replicarder they were all over again in the Pegasus galaxy um, I think there have been a lot of good Replicator stories and there have been a lot that I wish would have been better than they were you know it's to the point now where I feel like the Replicators are, are fairly fundamental to the Stargate universe I hope that they're never truly gone. I hope that they're like the Daleks in Doctor Who, that no matter how many times they seem to be completely defeated and wiped out of of existence, there's always some cool science fiction explanation for how they can come back in some form. And I like little stories like this, where it's just a handful of survivors, and they're not what they used to be. Yeah, I agree with most of what you said, but I gotta tell you, I'm ready for some new races. Oh you yeah. Know, I think I I think we are in need. I think Atlantis is in need, dire need of some new bad guys. Oh yeah. I know? Am, I'm much more um, tired of the Wraith though to be honest than the Replicators. I am too. I am too. The Wraith don't scare me like they used to. I and I and I've said to you before, I don't think it's gotten on the air before, but I look at a Wraith and I see a punk rocker, you know? I I I, ex- I, I expect him to be armed with an electric guitar and that's just how I see them. I think the that, reason that, that I... is frankly how I see them now. Yeah, I think the reason that I'm tired of the Wraith now is because you can only follow those guys so long when you don't really know any of them. None of them have names. Todd and Michael have have gone a long way to repairing that. But other than those guys, it's not like the Gould where they all have such personality. 
and such yep. class, and we got to know the differences, the subtle motivational differences between someone like Cronus and Ball yeah. and Nearty. I think it's a satisfying so. continuation of the Replicator storyline. Again, as much as I loved Be All My Sins Remembered, I was disappointed that they got rid of them so early as a full advanced race, as a fully developed civilization with this leader who was, as soon as he found out that we were living in Atlantis, was pretty much bent on destroying it. Um, Mm -hmm. I was disappointed that they went out as fast as they did, so of course I was happy to see that there was that one ship that survived at the end. And I hope they're not left floating out there in space forever. I hope that we find some need to go back. There's a real question in this episode about Weir's identity, about whether or not Fran Weir is the real Weir. At the climax of the episode, Shepard says to her, you're not Elizabeth. Elizabeth would not mm-hmm. have done that. And, and you see in, in Fran's eyes that she realizes she's not the Weir that she once was before she became a replicator. John, stay back. Let me handle this. But you've done enough already. I'm trying to help you. By what? Escaping? I didn't know that Corson would do this. Of course she knew. Elizabeth has been a willing participant in our goals from the very beginning. It was her idea to come here in the first place. You said you broke off for a moment. That they couldn't track you. Track her? She was the one who alerted us when the time was right to come. We were only following her commands. John, listen to me. I had to bring them here. It was our only chance, our only way out. I didn't know that Coruscant would cause this kind of trouble. I didn't think that anyone would get hurt. What do you think we were gonna do? Just give you a bunch of replicator bodies and send you on your way? I truly believed that we were no threat to you. You may still think you're Elizabeth, but you're not. Then there's that twist at the end where she sacrifices herself just as Weir would have done uh, and she before she walks through the gate she looks back at Shepard and that I think that what I got out of that look between the two of them was that she was demonstrating that she was and is the real Elizabeth Weir so now that she's yeah. floating out there in space I think the question that's left for the future of her storyline and the future of the replicator storyline is if she's our friend Elizabeth are we going to leave her behind yeah, you know, and we don't know how public that Stargate is. So someone may come along and collect them, which I think would be interesting, too. So, you know, I I hope that they're not uh, abandoning that idea. You know, I hope that's not the last that we see of Weir and Neam's group. You know, I was always hoping to see Neam again because mm-hmm. uh, I thought that his I thought that his objective was was a very sound one, you know, uh, oh, to be human. And uh, a lot of a lot of times in other shows, you know, that's a very big th- that's a very big thing, you know, but uh, this is this is something that hasn't been a huge part of Stargate. And I think uh, I think it was cool. So to have his group continue to flourish all this time. Um, and then have them be betrayed. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's saying something, you know? I think that that could lead to future stories. There's some really nice development in Neam's group in that Coruscant thinks he's found this digital version of Ascension. Wasn't that from the left field? Yeah, yeah, it was, so. it was a cool idea. And it's ironic, of course, that all of his remaining seven or eight followers ended up basically suffering the same fate that Neam did, which is getting spaced and frozen. Mm-hmm and left adrift in deep space. But I agree, you know, there's, they're parked next to a Stargate, so as long as they drift far enough away, which I think they had the momentum to drift far enough away to not get kawooshed, their odds of being found are much better than Neem's ever were. Oh, yeah, I know. But I got to tell you, a high point for this episode, and it was 
because we were there watching it be filmed. It was the first glimpse of the season that we got was Woolsey standing tall, standing up to the replicators and saying, you know, I don't think you're going to do this. So go ahead and sink the city. Destroy the city. Destroy your last chance of ever attaining ascension or getting bodies for that matter. This was the other half of the Woolsey that I was wanting to see. I was wanting to see the comedic side, and I was wanting to see the standing tall side of Woolsey, you know, where, where he fights for his people. And this this episode brought both of those points to it, you know? Yeah. I, Robert Picardo, I have been confident that he could pull this off in combination with good writing, and he did not disappoint. Yeah, Woolsey's had a little bit of a slow build. He's had some really nice moments in the last few episodes. This is the one where I really think he steps up and, and shows that... He's not just a bureaucrat. He's capable of making those tough calls. Mm-hmm. Also, you, you raised an interesting point in our notes here. You know, the, the data that we're downloaded to the database. I wonder if this has something to do with the mid-season two-parter. I mean, because we know that someone's coming. I wonder if one of the databases that they downloaded themselves into were of this new enemy. Because, you know, as soon as she said it, I knew that they were setting it up. You know, you have if you had any idea how many technologically advanced species are hiding out in the Pegasus galaxy, I think you'd be really surprised. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm, well, isn't that a precursor? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know from what the producers have said that they're introducing a major new race in the mid-season two-parter. So I've, I've thought the exact same thing. I thought that that was some nice little setup and that we're probably going to see McKay go back to that data that Weir gave him and recognize something once we've met these guys. Yeah, and one of the things that occurred to me, and there's possibly an obvious answer to it, but maybe maybe not, where are the ARGs? Where did they all go? Everyone was shooting at these guys with, with P90s. They're basically shooting blanks. What happened to the anti-replicator guns? Yeah, that's a great question. you got to wonder if they were so convinced that the replicators were all destroyed last season that they just shipped them all back to Earth or something. Oh, that's that's bull. That's got to be. Why are they even bothering with P90s? You know, I mean, all it does is, if you're lucky, slow the, it, it slows them down. And and then it does really bad things to the walls and the upholstery. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was watching that for the second time, and I was like, why doesn't Shepard have an ARG? Because this guy's coming right at him, and he's basically shooting blanks. And then, and then I, I got to wondering, you know, were the ARGs rendered useless after the replicators in the Season 4 episode lifeline after the replicators continually tested the bubble around the puddle jumper and were able to eventually penetrate it where the ARGs calibrated to that frequency and so they were basically worthless I don't know my that occurred to me too my impression of how ARGs work is that you can basically just adjust the frequency and it'll work again like changing your changing your frequency on your phaser when you're shooting Borg <laughs> not to go back to too many Star Trek references now yeah, <laughs> that's what it occurred to me too. Yeah, yeah, that's. A but good did did that did that occur to you at all? I've definitely seen other fans online comment about the lack of ARGs. I wasn't thinking about the lack of ARGs as much as Shepard's comment. If you keep shooting these guys, eventually they'll go down. So I thought, well, okay, these replicators are not exactly the full force awesome replicators that we see if, if you shoot with regular bullets it does absolutely nothing to them yeah they're fran quality they're fran quality and they're they're like the human made replicator that we saw in outcast they don't have the same immediate self-repairing function in their nanite cells so if you do shoot them enough with enough heavy artillery then eventually you can break them apart yeah yeah it's interesting 
But, uh, you know, aside from that, the story overall was good. I gave it an 8 out of 10 on the Gate World poll. And, you know, it was just a, it was fun. But I have to ask myself, what would this episode have been like had Tori been in the role rather than Michelle? Yeah. You think this episode would have been better if it had been Tori and we'd gotten to see her continue on from that last shot? It'd be almost since remembered. I don't think so. I love Tori. I don't I don't disguise that. I miss her. But I think Michelle made a very effective interpretation of the weird character. She's now the third person to play this role. Uh-huh. And she did it. She did it well. She was very classy about it. You know, she uh, she didn't make any big deal about it. She came in. She did the job, and she did a good job. I mean, would I have liked to have Tori back? Yes, but I don't think her presence or lack thereof would have made or broke the show. You yeah, know? I love Tori. I've I first interviewed her before the show even premiered. I got to meet her and interview her, um, and I'd love to have her back. I'd love to have her back, but. Asking the question that we're asking, would the episode have been better with Tori? I think it's comparing apples to oranges. This was a great episode. It could have been a great episode in a different way. But I think that in order to fill Elizabeth Weir's very big shoes and continue the storyline, I think that, that the way they did it was really brilliant. And bringing back Michelle Morgan as Fran, I think, is just about the only way that would have satisfied me other than Tori. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense for her to come back. You know, that was what was what I thought was such a stroke of genius about it was it it made sense for it to be her, you know, to play this character. Because uh, now that we're a replicator, we know what she would need to do to get herself out of the system and she would become Fran. I thought it was a little bit of a cheat that she didn't take enough time to reconstitute Elizabeth Weir and just made Fran instead and then later took the time to make the identities of all the other guy, all the other characters. Yeah, it makes sense. In instead context, of a dozen yeah. friends walking around, she was trying to get it done quickly before they could stop her. You know, overall, I gotta say, uh, I like this even better than Deadless Variations. I think this is my new favorite for the season. Ah, really? The one criticism that I did have was that obviously there's a lot of exposition in the first act, and I would have liked it if they would have gotten to Fran and the replicators a little more quickly. Uh, and not had quite so much, you know, there's lightning bolts in the puddle jumper and in the city, and we don't really know what's going on. That seemed to drag out a little bit too long for me. And then once we found out that it was Weir in the computer system, they did almost all of that initial exposition with our team standing around a computer. And the computer interface with the voice synthesizer was kind of a cool idea, but to carry that much exposition for that long, I, I was just desperate to see Fran. What can I say? Yeah, you know... Uh, I was surprised that as much exposition took place with the computer console as it did. But yeah, you know, I mean, that's uh, that's the way that they did it. And it and uh, it kept things kind of interesting instead of having half the episode in a room with guards as Elizabeth tells her story. Like like Gandalf getting rescued by Gwahir from the top of Isengard, you know, where, where he sits around and tells his story for the next for the next several chapters. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, I have not enjoyed an episode this much, I think, since probably midway last year. I think it's yeah, right I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, too. You know, I mean, and that ending I is think, just cool. Did you expect that? No, I didn't expect that. I didn't either. You know, from the previous scene, you kind of knew that, that Weir was in on whatever was going on. But I, I didn't expect it. I thought that, that the look back over the shoulder at Shepard was more of a, you know, we have some unfinished business here sort of a look. 
not a I'm about to sacrifice myself so you know that I am who I think I am. So I was surprised. And then the, the beauty of that final shot of Fran Weir floating in space and the other replicators coming through and being surprised uh, and the score, Joel's score in this episode, I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Made that last shot yeah. really, really haunting and memorable. Yeah, I had a little bit of a a beef with the music because the moment where the replicators are leaving the control room, it has a little bit of Vala's theme in there. Really? Yeah, and it was totally Vala's melody. And I was like, that's odd. And it stopped me. It, mm-hmm. I, was, I was distracted by that while she was talking with Woolsey as they were going down the stairs. I was busy thinking about that. And then... I realized that I had spent about 30 seconds focusing on the Vala overlap and then realized what was happening. They're floating (laughs) through the gate. It's like, oh, I guess I missed that. I guess that's me paying too much attention to the music. But if you listen to that part right after they open open the Stargate, you know, it sounds like one of Vala's little themes. But, uh, yeah, I loved the ending. It completely surprised me. You know, I thought it was nice and fresh rather than them going away and doing their business and maybe we'll see them again. You know, it was different. It was a conclusion. It was finality. It was it was a finality. It was. And we've criticized this this point before where the writers sort of end things but just leave us hanging. This way, I think this was very satisfying. It's the sort of thing where they could come back and revisit her or this could be the end of her and the replicators and, and still, I think, be satisfying to me. But if they don't go back, then it is an ending. Yeah, you know, it's not a Ford disappearing. It's, it's not, not a Ford. Ford sets the gold standard for untied plot threads. Yeah, <laughs> and this was not a Ford ending, which I was very appreciative of. Listener mail. We asked you in last week's listener question whether you think the replicators are great to still have around, or if you think it's time for them to go. We got some great mail on this one, so David, open up that mailbag. The Replicators. Stargate Lover says, While I tend to enjoy Replicator episodes, I feel that they are being overly used. I think we've defeated them nearly as many times as Daniel has died. (laughs) It's getting a bit old. I say bring in those Borg-like guys from the Daedalus Variations as a new bad guy. You know, Stargate Lover raises an interesting point here. I think he or she is, is smart enough to recognize... When there is a good episode with a good enemy, but is also intelligent enough to recognize when they've been used too much, despite the fact that they're good. I think that's a really interesting point. The best enemies, I think, are used kind of sparingly. The Borg were used sparingly in Next Generation, and it was when they became sort of a centralized villain in those middle seasons of Voyager that I think the fans really started to criticize them as a villain. Well, to be fair, I still loved them anyway, but um, I can see where some people would. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, the more you learn about them, the less alien they are. Yeah, and the more we defeat them, the less of a threat they are. I mean, by by late season eight, I think we all knew that the Gould were pretty much not a threat. Yeah, they were on their way out. We all knew that. Not because it made sense from a story standpoint, but because, you know, I mean, we had kicked the crap out of them so many times and up and down so many different sides. You can only do so much. Yeah, that's why Anubis had to be introduced as as a half-ascended super-Gould. It's because we had we'd taken it to the regular Gould so many times. Yeah, that boombox voice, snake in the head, classic Apophis was just like, okay, we've done that. It's nice that you think that you're a god, but, uh, you know, we don't believe you. <laughs> 
but yeah, with the replicators, you know, I was I was hesitant when they introduced them in Atlantis, and I was asking myself, you know, are are we are we treading are we retreading a little too much here? But I think they proved themselves to be interesting. I would, had hoped that they would have been a little bit more interesting. I remember Martin Garrow said to us originally when they were bringing the replicators in that they lend themselves to some very neat tricks, and I had hoped that that would run beyond the very next episode after they were introduced, which was the real world in season three, but it didn't really seem to. And then the next season, they blow them up. Yeah, they, did, they did have some tricks that I think they, they never really got played. We saw them finally get to shapeshift just before they get blown up in this mortal coil last year. But, I mean, how cool would it have been to have a shape-shifting replicator infiltrator of some sort? Mm-hmm. Like, to find out that one of the members of our team has been replaced for several months? Kind of like what they did in DS9 with Martok and Bashir? Yeah, a little Dominion changeling action going on. Yep, but I can understand that I can appreciate that that's already been done and they might not want to do that again. And this is exactly why I hope that there are more replicator stories in the future, is because there are so many cool potentials. I think they wrote them out too soon, so I hope they're not really gone. Who else did we have sent in mail? Perkin127 writes in and says, I think the replicators were a great bad guy, but I've had enough now. I'm a little bored of them as, unlike the Wraith and the Gould, they lack the shock value due to them looking like normal humans. You only have to take one look at a Wraith to know they're scary. Yeah, that's true. The replicators do look like humans. And I'm sure, as Brad Wright would say, you know, we have to cast on Earth. So, <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it's their connection to the ancients that I always found so interesting about the Pegasus Galaxy replicators. But, you know, as, as I think I said a couple of weeks ago, there aren't enough aliens on this show. I would love to see more. Yeah, Star Trek got criticized in its later years for, for doing so many simple, bumpy-headed aliens, but it'd be nice on, on Stargate to even have that. Yeah, you know, when when you when you long for a bumpy-headed alien, you know you're sad. <laughs> and we also have a call into the Gate World podcast hotline today. Let's listen to that. Hey, this is Scott from Birmingham, Alabama again. I was calling response to the listener question this week. I believe the Replicators were some of the best villains when they were the bug variety. Their introduction in Season 3's finale, Nemesis, was probably one of my favorite episodes of SG-1 and continued on to their reintroduction into the, the bug version of the universe in Arc of Truth. I was one of the few people who probably enjoyed the fact that the replicators were in the movie. After Season 6's introduction of the human form replicators in Unnatural Selection, I wasn't too excited about them. I liked them better as bugs, not as the human versions, and then as the human versions that have continued on into Atlantis. I just haven't been that excited about them. We also have some uh, general comments for Gate World's podcast. Dark Glasses has to say, My topic suggestion for the next podcast that won't feature discussion of the latest Atlantis episode is the discussion on the SG-1 Atlantis novel range, as well as the newish Big Finish SG-1 Atlantis audio range. Uh, I think in order to uh, have a discussion on this, we have to <clears throat> read them. And I haven't really had time to read a lot of the uh, the Stargate novels, and I and I <laughs> I admit I haven't picked up the audiobooks yet, even though I'm a huge audiobook fan, and I'm really looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. Even though you and I are not about to jump into a discussion of the Stargate novels, we do have plans to go talk to some of those novel authors and bring them on the podcast and have a little chat with them. So we will be doing more on the books and the podcast. 
And finally, Quaid One writes, The September 2nd discussion should be about the future of the Stargate franchise. SG-1 is done and the movies are out, so now what? Stargate Universe is a possibility, and maybe more movies? And what about the future of Atlantis? Jason Momoa has talked about maybe leaving the show. Could it be happening sooner than we think? Now that's a topic that I could go for. That's a big topic. But you and I definitely have a lot to say on it. We have a lot to say on everything. Yeah, we'll definitely think about that suggestion, though. We have one more new episode before we get another week off. (laughs) Week off. (laughs) From from watching television. (laughs) It's so tough. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Here's this week's listener question. We're looking forward to The Shrine airing on Friday, which is a big Rodney McKay episode. So we're asking GateWorld podcast listeners to call in or write in and tell us what you think makes Rodney McKay a great character. Is it his brilliant mind? Is it his complete and utter lack of tact? Is it his vulnerability as a character? Tell us why you like Rodney McKay, and don't miss the Shrine this Friday on Sci-Fi. So in next week's podcast, don't forget we have two very special guests while David is away playing. We're going to have David Hewlett, who plays Rodney McKay on the show, as well as his sister Kate, who plays Jeannie Miller, Rodney's sister. They'll be here with me to talk about the Shrine. September 2nd, we're looking for a topic still, so write in and suggest what you'd like to hear us talk about, and then we'll be back on September 9th to talk about whispers. Whispers. And the entire episode will be done whispering. What? Thank you for spending your time with the GateWorld Podcast today. Why don't you give us your feedback at the GateWorld Podcast hotline? That's 616-712-1647. Or you can post on the show notes on the website or over at GateWorld Forum. Just look for the podcast feedback thread. In this episode, we talked about Ghost in the Machine, the newest episode of Stargate Atlantis, and we gave you a preview of our upcoming interview with actor David Nichol. For links to everything we talked about today, look for the episode number 7 show notes at GateWorld.net. From GateWorld, this is Darren Sumner. And I'm David Reed. And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast. Podcast.